Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end and what is passing away. But their minds were dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It's not been removed, because only in Christ it's taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have his ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced the secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth, plainly we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Have you ever wondered why in the Bible we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Testament isn't a word we tend to use every day. It comes in the category of a good old-fashioned piece of religious jargon. One of those things you think might have been designed almost on purpose to make things complicated and confusing for the uninitiated. Old Testament, what is that about? My dictionary tells me that Testament literally means that which testifies or in which an attestation is made, which perhaps doesn't sound like it's going to help very much. But in one sense it does, because Old and New Testament alike attest to the reality of God. The documents in these pages set out who God is, that he is, what he's like, the basis on which we as human beings can relate to him. Testament in this sense carries a similar meaning to the word evidence. We might say that we live in such an amazing world and that is evidence of the existence of creator or testament to the existence of a creator. It means that the marvels of creation are evidence for the existence of God, testament to God's reality. In the same way, the Bible, Old and New Testament combined, is a witness, a testament to the reality of the one true and living God. On the other hand, these days many people will associate the word testament with the film, Testament of Youth. How many people have seen that? Yeah, only a couple, not many, three, okay, not many people here then obviously. But in the wider world perhaps, people who've watched the film Testament of Youth based on Vera Britton's book of the same name, it's about the generation of young men killed in the First World War. What is their legacy? And at the end of the film, Vera Britton's character says, perhaps their deaths have meaning only if we stand together now and say no. No to killing. No to war. No to the endless cycle of revenge. I say no more of it. That, for her would be a fitting testament to the generation that lost their lives. So the term testament is also bound up with the idea of legacies and death. We still use that somewhat stilted phrase, the last will and testament of someone who's died. 
The two terms didn't originally mean the same thing. A will disposed of land, a testament disposed of personal property. In this case, the term testament actually means a legally binding document, in the sense that a will and testament is evidence of the wishes of the person who died, which are deemed to be legally binding to the extent to which they can be legally fulfilled. What's that got to do with the Bible? Well, our word testament comes from the Latin testamentum, and when the Bible was translated into Latin, this word testamentum was used to translate the Greek word diatheke, and diatheke means testament, will, covenant. It's the word used of the covenant between God and his people. It's a word that means a binding agreement. It can be used specifically of the last will and testament of someone who's died. It's used in that sense of the book of Hebrews. But it's also used as a contract or a covenant or a binding agreement between two parties who are still alive. We as Christians identify the old covenant as the covenant God made with his people at Mount Sinai where he gave them the Ten Commandments. And they agreed that as his people they would keep his law and abide by the terms and conditions of his covenant with them. And that covenant was sealed with the blood of a bull. As I said in communion, half the blood on the altar, the other half sprinkled over the people. And and Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant between you and your God this day. But as you trace the story of God's dealings with his people from Exodus through Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges and Kings, you find despite what Hebrew says about it being a story of faith, it's also a story of failure their failure to keep the covenant. The consequence was that the people lost their place in the land God had promised to give them as his people. They ended up going away into exile. And that could have been the end of the story, game over, but through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised he would make a new covenant with his people. A covenant that would involve God unilaterally forgiving their sins, writing his law on their hearts, ensuring that as his people, each of them would have a personal relationship with him. We as Christians claim that this covenant is what Jesus instituted at the Last Supper when he shared a cup of wine with his followers and said, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the story of the old covenant and its failure is what we read in the Old Testament. While the new covenant, God's new deal as it were, is promised in the Old Testament but fulfilled in the new. So we tend to use the word covenant to refer to the agreement between God and his people and testament to refer to the written narratives about those agreements. But it would make a lot more sense actually if instead of talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament, we talked instead about the books of the Old Covenant and the books of the New Covenant. Because essentially that's what it's about. The Old Testament is the Old Covenant story. The New Testament is the New Covenant story. Someone called Melito Sardis actually uses the term books of the Old Covenant for the first time in the second century. But there you go, for better or for worse, the word testament came to be used as a way of referring to the Bible, parts one and two. And Paul, Paul is the one responsible for this, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about reading the Old Covenant. In the authorised version, it's reading the Old Testament. And that's a perfectly valid translation. Let's hear what Paul has to say. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when everyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul in this chapter says a whole host of things, but one of the things he does is he sets up a vivid contrast between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New. Both are glorious, he says, but the glory of the New surpasses the Old. Because the Old Covenant brought condemnation and death. wasn't what God intended by giving his people the law, but their failure to keep it meant that that was the outcome. The new covenant, even with human failure, brings righteousness and freedom and life because of Jesus, as Joe said at the beginning of the service. In a commentary, Margaret Thrall puts it this way, the law written on stone tablets was powerless to produce the behaviour it enjoined. So it exerts an external and tyrannical control over those under its sway. It's far otherwise with the new order of things, which is characterised by the power of the Spirit of God operating within the heart of the believer. The Old Testament written on stone. And the result was condemnation. The New Testament written on our hearts, writing God's law and changing us from within together with the promise of forgiveness. The result is righteousness. So Paul says the Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Yet we need to be careful here. Can't just denigrate the Old Testament as a way of stressing the benefits of the new. Let's not forget that what we disparagingly call the Old Testament makes up the Jewish scriptures. Judaism is still a living faith. They understand and interpret their scriptures very differently to the way we do. And to say, as Paul does, well, they just don't understand because a veil covers their hearts and hardens their minds is not perhaps the best way of trying to understand their point of view. What we call the Old Testament, actually, is their testament of God. 
Some people say we shouldn't call it the Old Testament because that implies it's out of date. We should refer to the Jewish Testament or the Hebrew Testament. But there you go, the Old Testament are their scriptures. And I've lost count of the number of Christians who say, oh, I don't read the Old Testament. So much of it is bad news. Don't like it. Don't like the God that's there. Don't like the message of it. God seems so quick to fly off the handle at people, to strike them down with plagues. Whereas with Jesus, it's all sweetness and light and forgiveness and love. Back in the second century, a Christian teacher called Marcion even went so far as to say that the angry, vengeful God of the Old Testament was not at all the same God as the God of Jesus Christ. Because the God that Jesus talks about is mild and peaceable, solely kind and supremely good. There is no need to fear the God of Jesus because he doesn't get angry or inflict punishment on people. He doesn't consign people to the fires of hell or to gnashing their teeth in the outer darkness. Many people think, that's the kind of God I want. It's much more comforting to believe in this kind of God who wouldn't hurt a fly. But it won't do. Because there is only one God. And the God of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament God, is one and the same as the God of the New Covenant, the New Testament God. And God does not change. The same yesterday, today and forever. So we can't explain the different perspective on God by saying he's just mellowing with age. But on the other hand, whereas God doesn't change, our perception of God does. Changes as we progress through life and as we move through from one generation to another, the culture in which we live shapes and moulds our perception of God. There is no such thing as an objective view of God. We only have our subjective perceptions of him and they will be coloured by our understanding of how the world works, what human life is about and those perceptions are culturally conditioned. So people in different generations read and interpret the Bible very differently. We read it differently for people 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago and that's inevitable. And there are those who say actually the people who wrote the Bible express their culturally conditioned understanding of God, rooted in the society and age in which they lived. So the violent, vengeful God of the Old Testament reflects the violent, vengeful culture in which parts of the Old Testament were written. As time went by, people just got a bit more enlightened and their views of God changed accordingly. The technical term for that is progressive revelation. We have a primitive view of God in the Old Testament. It gets better in the New Is it true to say that the more time passes, the clearer a picture of God we get? Is it true to say that we understand God better in the 21st century, because we've made so much progress, than people did in the 1st century, when Jesus was there? I'm not sure, actually. Admittedly, the God of the Old Testament is the God who says... Someone sins, I'm going to punish their children, their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren after them. And the God of the New Covenant says, I'm not going to do that anymore. Each person is going to be responsible for their own sin and if they repent, I'm going to forgive them. That's one of the really big contrasts between the Old and New Testament. How does it come about? Has God changed? Has our understanding and perception of God changed? Maybe. It's possible that people develop, we can see this happening, a developing understanding of a life beyond this one. 
Each of us will stand before the judgment seat of God to give an individual account of our lives and we will be rewarded or punished accordingly. In that case, I have to understand I can't dodge the consequences of my sin so that God's judgment falls on my children if I get away with it. What I do in my life, I will have to answer to God for. So maybe that development in understanding has affected our perception of God. Judgment doesn't come on my sin to the next generation after me. Judgment on my sin comes to me in the life beyond this one, which I will have to give an account to God in. Or maybe it's that God just decided to deal with sin in a different way. So instead of judging and condemning sin from one generation to another, God judged and condemned sin once and for all in the person of his son on the cross. Dealt with it there so that we can be set free from the control of sin over our lives and from its far-reaching consequences which otherwise would extend from one generation to the next. If we see God differently in the New Testament from how people in the Old Testament saw God, the reason is because Jesus has dealt with sin. We can see the love of God more clearly because that is not obscured by his righteous anger against our sinfulness. As people who have been forgiven, as people who, whose sin has been dealt with, we can see the love of God far more clearly than people can who still live under the shadow of God's anger against the sin that is still part of their lives. Jesus has cleared the clouds. We can see God more clearly because he has dealt with our sin as God's son. And maybe that's why he himself was able to show us such a gracious God, because as someone who committed no sin, he was able to see the holiness of God without being threatened by it. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the best picture of God we will ever get. We do not understand God better in the 21st century compared with how they understood God in the 1st century, because Jesus is the best picture of God you will ever find. And he was around in the 1st century, We've only got what was written about him in the 21st. You can't say that our understanding of God just keeps on getting better and better. Otherwise, Islam would automatically be better than Christianity because Islam is a more recent religion. I don't want to say that. I want to say that Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. It's sometimes said that Christians, Muslims and Jews are all people of the book. And I agree with that up to a point, but we need to be careful. Because Paul says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The word without the Spirit doesn't achieve anything. The word brings condemnation. It's the Spirit who enables us to hear the word of grace, see the reality of Jesus, and receive the forgiveness into our hearts. We need the life-giving grace of the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. Without the, New Test- without the Holy Spirit, even the New Testament remains a book of words that we read without the ability to understand it or accept it. It still remains external to us. And while it remains external to us, we are not saved by its message. With the Holy Spirit, the New Testament is no longer just a book we read. The Holy Spirit makes the new covenant of which it speaks a reality in our lives. Writing in our hearts the knowledge of God. Writing on our hearts the law of God. Inscribing on our hearts the forgiveness of God. 
identifying us as God's beloved people. The new covenant says God is our God. We are his people. We know him for ourselves. He forgives our sins. He writes his law on our hearts. The New Testament bears witness to that. The Holy Spirit makes the new covenant of which the New Testament speaks a reality in our lives. We need the Spirit to receive the message. In Jesus, God's word becomes flesh. By the Holy Spirit, God's word becomes part of who we are. If we read the Bible, we need to ask God to write his words in our hearts and in our minds so they become life and salvation to us, not words that remain external to us and condemn us. That's important for our witness. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth on the back of a falling out with them, says, I don't need to produce letters of recommendation for you from the powers that be as evidence of my credentials to preach the gospel to you. You are my letter, he says. You are the result of my ministry. Not written with pen and ink or inscribed on tablets of stone. You are Christ's letter. His spirit has written in your hearts. And there the message of the new covenant is known and read by everybody. It's no good being known as people of the book if we are not also people of the spirit. A spirit that brings righteousness, freedom, life, a godly character, and the reality of the new covenant. The end of the day, even the New Testament itself, it's just words. But with the Holy Spirit, the New Testament becomes a life-changing, life-giving encounter with the Spirit of the living God that makes the new covenant a reality in our lives. You can read about it in these pages. You can listen to me talk about it in sermons. But ultimately... Only you can open the door of your heart and allow God's Spirit to make a reality in your life and change your life forever. You read here about Jesus and forgiveness and righteousness and life and freedom and God's love. Reading about it is one thing. Receiving it is another. It's the Spirit that makes it real to us. And if we respond to what we read by saying, Jesus come into my life as my Lord and Saviour. It makes sense. It becomes real. Not just words written about God's new covenant, but God's new covenant in our lives and in our hearts.